So Lojong teachings, called often called training the mind, uh, and it's a series of aphorisms, and they trace back to Atisha, who was a Indian pundit, pundit in the 11th century, who uh, trained in India and then went to Tibet and brought Dharma to Tibet, and what he sort of launched ended up being the foundations of what is now the Galupa school. But a very, very pivotal figure in the evolution of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and it's this, the, the Lojong is this series of aphorisms, these like cryptic little, short little one-liners that people interpret differently, but you can work with them, which is really what's kind of fascinating about it. And, you know, this is primarily what we do here is early Buddhism and Theravada tradition related to the suttas, but this stuff is so core that there's nothing out of alignment with it. It's just completely kind of augments what you might pick up from early Buddhism. So I think it's completely appropriate. And I just looked through, I mean, I looked through and there was, you know, I know I had this much time and this and that, so I chose nine. It really kind of rang for me. And I'm just going to walk through them with a certain sense of progression and, you know, just see if, see if it works for you. So the first one, the bold face for those of you who are <laughs> looking, but it's blame everything on one thing. Blame everything on one thing. And the point is, you know, when we navigate life, it's hard sometimes. And so we go, what's going on? What's the problem? What is my angst? And it says blame everything on one thing. And that one thing is grasping itself. That false identification with self, this innate sense that we have that there's a concrete, inherently existent self when, in fact, there isn't. And, you know, we uh, encounter difficulties in lives, and we tend, in our lives, we tend to, we blame others, we blame circumstances, all these different things arise, and it's really easy to point outwardly, you know, the whole idea of blaming. We, we do that in various levels, either in our discussions with ourselves or in our discussions with our friends. We want to know why is this problem, why is this difficult? And so this aphorism says, blame everything on this one thing, like take yourself back, keep bringing yourself back to this concretized sense of self or the way we adhere to self. Because if there was an inherently existent self, then blaming would make sense because changing conditions would be, you know, would be in opposition to ourself. We'd want something and things change, and so that would be their fault. And we know that we just can't depend on outward stuff, right? And everything, and even our little, our little body thing that we're in, you know, it's going to get old, it's going to die, and the circumstances change. And there's God knows what, there's climate change and war and politics and everything. But the Buddha said in the second noble truth that grasping and aversion, they lead to the first noble truth, which is the inherently unsatisfactory nature of relying on circumstance, dukkha. And this dukkha is driven by attachment to selfing. It's really about us wanting something for ourselves, wanting something in our sphere to work out the way we our, our, our sense of self would like it to, to do. And so this kind of, it kind of clarifies. It's like one of these things, you know, the four noble truths, you can come at them from a million different directions. And this, to me, this, this little aphorism kind of clarifies what the first and second noble truth 
are all about. Because if, you know, the, the more that we're attached to an idea of self, the less possible it is to find any peace in the middle of changing circumstance. But the more we see through that, then the more we can find equanimity, no matter the changing circumstance, which is kind of the point, which is kind of the point. The second one is meditate on great kindness toward everyone. Meditate on great kindness toward everyone. And there's a lot here. It's a, it's a kind of like a, it sounds a little bit like metta, but it's sort of a different take. It's a little bit of a different dynamic. And this is relevant because our practice, our whole spiritual journey is in the context of people, pretty much. I mean, we're, we're social beings. We have, it's all about people and other beings. And when, when people especially want the goodies for themselves, like a lot of, you know, we get into this circumstance to varying degrees, but we want the good experience for ourselves. Often that happens at the expense of others in subtle ways or not so subtle ways, depending on what we're up to. But if we put ourselves first or really are focused on kind of meeting our needs, you know, there's this whole question of how much are we focused on the other needs of other people? Or are we putting the needs of other people first? Or even equality? There's a lot of dynamics in there to explore. But this one is saying meditate on great kindness toward everyone, which includes ourselves, but includes everyone. And, you know, here in 21st century, and we're all kind of in this career-driven little corner of the country, where there's all kinds of people making a lot of money in tech and there's all kinds of fancy houses and Lamborghini SUVs and the whole deal and people building big houses. That, well, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. But if, you know, how much, how much is that career-driven kind of thing get in the way of really caring for others? How, how does that work? And look at that. Because if this is in the context, this sort of makes context in the sense of being on the Dharma path. And these are questions for us to ask ourselves and how we navigate our own careers and stuff and how much, you know, how, how are we balancing that or in our own relationships? Is this putting kindness towards others first? And so I think this aphorism is good because it's one of these things to just keep checking. You know, I think what's beautiful about these things, just keep checking where we're at, what it means, what kind of choices are we making, what can we learn, where's our edge? Because as we grow on the path, you know, kind of the bar gets higher or the or the razor's edge gets narrower about what's ethical and what isn't and what's kind and what isn't. It's pretty interesting that way. And one way of looking at this to kind of like reverse engineer it is if, hypothetically, Perhaps, you know, we have this intention to become awakened, to become a Buddha, so to speak. All of us folks here, you could say, want us to have the ultimate freedom. Then if we think about someone who is awakened, how do we expect them or almost assume that they would act in terms of kindness? Would a Buddha, if we were running to a Buddha on the street, you would almost assume that they would have great kindness towards 
everybody, including us. That's kind of what we'd like. And the Dalai Lama, closest thing to a Buddha, perhaps, that we got, or at least high-profile one here in the 21st century, he's kind of like that. I mean, he's amazing. You know, when people come up to him, he just radiates kindness and just listens and, and sees people and recognizes them. And, wow, how amazing is that? And you could say that he does meditate on great kindness toward everyone. In fact, he says, my religion is kindness. And then as we look at that, we can start to see how that is a, because these are, these things are kind of sequential, how that's a core antidote to the one thing that we're looking through. You know, right at the beginning, due to the wonders of scrolling, blame everything on one thing. So the more we can cultivate great kindness, the more it starts to help us see through our attachment to that one thing, see how it trips us up. Because if we're really being kind toward beings, we, we, we kind of free ourselves from that. We kind of, we'll kind of walk out of that self-attachment. It's kind of beautiful how that happens. The more we turn toward great kindness, the less, the less self-cherishing is there. You know, there's this sort of teeter-totter. And you can just explore in your heart and your mind and see how it is and see that if, if, if less, less self-cherishing means there's less dukkha, that's kind of cool. Or if more great kindness, therefore, would mean less dukkha. That's kind of worthwhile. It can really show you how great kindness is right at the root of how we free ourselves. There's a lovely sutta, interesting sutta, where King Pasanati, he visited, he was one of the two great kings that were the sponsors of the Buddha. He was the one in the Magadha kingdom, out on the Nokosala kingdom, out on the west side of the Buddha's Kaninya Sravasti, or in that area. And so the king uh, Pasanati, he was in a, you know, powerful king in a complicated court where all kinds of people were maneuvering and dissatisfied and striving for power and stepping all over each other and, and doing all the things that people do in political situations. So it was not fun for the king or probably any of them. And so he walks to see the Buddha and on the way he's passing all these monastics who are practicing and he's, he's startled. It's so different from where his wealthy, incredibly wealthy, powerful court where everybody sort of has the goods and ain't making them happy. Whereas these monks who have nothing and who have shed attachment to anything are quite the opposite. The king says, here I see monastics living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Here I see monastics smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, subsisting on what others give, abiding with mind as aloof as a wild deer's. Isn't that beautiful how kindness comes up a couple times, joyfulness comes up, a kind of freedom comes up, and, it, and there's something to learn there, you know? There's something to learn there. Some of you go to Clear Mountain, and, you know, hang out around Ajahn Nisipo and Ajahn Kovalo and other visiting monastics. And there is that sense of this sort of happy freedom because it, there's not much to get stuck on. And you can see the way they're putting kindness towards others almost in, inherently first. The third one is 
whatever you encounter, immediately apply it to meditation. And this is really interesting, you know, because we might think we kind of have these ideas about the spiritual path and think, oh, it would be really nice to have a really perfect circumstance for our meditations, kind of this, like you see this stuff online sometimes, and there's a spiritual being and there's all radiant light and there's like plants and angels and lights and rainbows. And that's cool. I, I guess that would be great if that happened, but, you know, maybe not. Maybe it doesn't. Or in our own practice, maybe we have a nice time and then someone cuts us off on the freeway. You know, and what do we do? And is that wrong? Is that a problem? Or is that just the path unfolding is the point? Because here, whatever you encounter, immediately apply it to meditation. Immediately become mindful of that. Even when the person cuts you off on the freeway and watch what happens. You get whatever you do. You get angry, or someone very close to you says something particularly cutting because they know you so well, so they can really make it land. You know, how are you with that? And to immediately apply it to meditation, that is so powerful. It doesn't mean there's like a separation on the path where the good stuff is, that's where I'm doing my practice, and when the bad stuff is, that's not working, so I'll have to go look for the good stuff or distract myself or whatever. Nope, the whole thing. The whole thing. Because the Dharma has to work everywhere, including when circumstances are excruciating. I mean, in a sense, it has to be bulletproof because we might have a bullet. You know, it has to be completely working no matter what our circumstances are, which is the power of it. And there's some people here, you know, who have been through some, some really gnarly stuff. And the Dharma made an enormous difference. Which is, which is what's so amazing about it. It transforms the gnarly stuff into painful, yeah, but not, not the end. So that thought, I mean, it's a really powerful statement. Whatever you encounter, immediately apply it to meditation. And, and, you know, when, Someone's I, this very good friend of mine who's a practitioner, and I can't remember exactly what he said in the text, but basically it was like, what is practice now is whatever circumstance brings next, that's what he applies himself to. You know, the unfolding of his stuff is in fact his path. The thing that's in his face next is his unlayering, and he totally gets that. So he just going step by step, watching it peel away. In terms of my own journey, I don't talk about this much, I suppose, but I did, some of you know, in the fall of 2010, was this, for me, one of the most excruciating periods of my life where in the space of about two weeks, I, I just started a three-month retreat. The, essentially, the Lama resigned. The retreat center started to fall apart. Then my wife's only sibling died about three days later. And then it caused all kinds of ruptures in our marriage, hard to explain. But for a while there, I wasn't sure if our marriage was going to make it. So just everything, boom, 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 we're falling apart. And it was really hard. It was probably one of the worst, most excruciating things. My wife said excoriating. <laughs> we saw an owl in the middle of this. And I said, what does that mean, honey? She said, it's going to be excoriating. I was like, oh, thanks. You know, and it was. 
it was really, really, really painful. And I can't say, you know, I, I mean, I can't even for a moment claim that I had all kind of equanimity and everything was cool no matter what. No, I was just, I was, I was nailed. But I didn't give up. I will say that. I didn't give up and I had, I, I knew it was conditions. You know, I knew it was conditions just hammering at me right then. And there were, I kept as best I could imperfectly, but I kept turning, turning, turning and moving ahead, ahead, ahead and, and understanding that what was coming up was the way it was hitting me was my stuff, you know, and the only way to go was forward. So, and it did, you know, and I learned a lot in ways that I'm still processing. I think I said this great quote, but one of my teachers at the time said, he said, your practice has to work when you're in ICU with tube sticking out of your body. You know, I've always stuck with, stuck with me. Yeah, exactly. That's where it has to work. If you lose it, then what's the point? You know, what, 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 what? yeah, it's got to work then. So just to keep that in mind, I mean, it's a great aphorism, you know, a great thought. Whatever you encounter, immediately apply it to meditation. Just see how that works for you and see how that guides you onward into unpacking your own sticky stuff. Because every one of us has different kinds of conditionings and traumas and this lifetime, other lifetime, that's part of what the beauty of being in a group is as we get to know each other. You know, different people articulate where their painful place is and we go, oh, you have compassion for that and realize that it's, you know, it looks different than ours, but there's a way in which it's similar. And, and there's, a, there's a real camaraderie, a real uh, brotherhood or sisterhood or personhood in that. Forgive me. And this next one is, speak not of degenerate qualities. I don't know about the original Tibetan and the translation, but speak not of degenerate qualities. There's a couple things layered in there. Some of you know there's the ten unwholesome actions, which is sort of one of the lists of the Buddha. And four of those are about speech, which shows the power of speech. They are lying, sowing discord, harsh speech, and idle gossip are the four that we are bid to avoid. So speech is really powerful because it 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 kind of crystallizes our inner qualities. You know, to speak, we got to think of something, kind of crystallize the idea, and then we project it to somebody. So for one thing, we're sort of crystallizing in the very process of it. We're we're, we're coagulating things, we're analyzing things, and then if we say it to someone, once we've said it, you can't unsay it. You know, once we've said it, you can't unsay it. And it can have a huge impact if we aren't careful. So degenerate qualities, you know, that's the more tangled parts of our psyches or our characters or our attachments. And what do we do with that? And how do we hold it? And what's kind? What's kind to get go back up the list a little bit, you know, and how much of those degenerate qualities or dark qualities or are all around self-grasping. They kind of usually are, you know, something we want. Maybe people are obsessed with something because they think they're going to get their jollies out of it. Or maybe there's, they're traumatized in some way and they're a little twisted up inside and so it's kind of stuck until they get it worked out. But usually those things are, they're stuck in that arena of self And it's in what we speak is of paramount importance. And if we're going to meditate on great kindness with beings, we really have to be mindful about what we're saying and how that's going to land. 
and this whole arena of sort of qualities are in the arena of selfing because they are all conditional. You know, there's no inherent self anywhere. Then the very components that we make the sense of self out of are qualities, and some of them are, you know, painful, wretched, damaged, whatever they are right now. And so to be able to not speak those, you know, not, not speak them out to someone in a way that will hurt, to bring love into them and have it be part of our process. And also outwardly, like you might see someone else and say, oh, he's a selfish person, you know, see this aspect that we perceive and reduce them to just that. And we do that, you know, speak the, the, the degenerate quality, this is called gossip perhaps, of someone else. But when we do that, when we make them into a thing, we can't even see. Maybe that person's kind to their mother, you know, kind to their child. I had this, there's this great, maybe someone help me, the, uh, I'm in tricky territory. Okay, I'll pass on that. But there is a, a particular political figure about whom I had some very difficult, it, was, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't an elected politician, but an attorney who worked for elected politicians. But he was extremely kind to his mother. And I kind of found out something about his life. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Got to rethink that, you know, a little bit. Because uh, I had, you can sort of turn this person into like this evil thing. I, I Sorry, my little twitching around right there is I'm really careful not to get into political stuff in this situation. Because the few times I've slipped up, it turned out that I was completely mis- misassuming something about someone else's position. So we kind of don't go there. This one's interesting. Abandon poisonous food. And this is not so much dietary advice, but rather advice about what we think. And it's kind of closely related to the one above. Because if we're going to avoid speaking of degenerate qualities, we must not have them or cultivate them. And our inner qualities depends on what we think and what we absorb, you know, what we take in. So it's really an area to be real careful about. Here in 2023, just like it's ridiculous how much stuff is out there floating around that you could take in out on the web, just everywhere. You know, I mean, it, life used to be simpler. <laughs> but it's not to be really mindful about what doors we're opening, where we're going, what we're letting in, how that influences. You can see how it can color how, where our hearts are. And it's really worth being conscious and careful. And it's no accident that monastics and sacred people limit what they can take in. I mean, it's kind of a running joke with the uh, Ajahn Koval and Ajahn Nisabo. They, among the things they can't do is entertainment. They, they don't watch movies. They can watch documentaries, but they don't do they don't do movies. They don't do music. Might seem a little strict to you, but it does keep them in this moment. They don't. And it's kind of this running joke that they're sort of wherever they took robes, that's where they, their music thing stops. So they might know about, you know, the Rolling Stones, what, 15th album, but not after that, even how many they did. So it's kind of hilarious. But to be really mindful of that, abandon poisonous food. I love these things because they're so like powerful. You know, you really chew over that one. It doesn't mince words. And this is mind training. You know, we might watch what we eat physically because we want to stay healthy. And then we watch what we eat mentally 
because we want to stay healthy. I love this one. Do not load the burden of a zoe on an ox. As you might guess, this is incredibly Tibetan-oriented, and a zoe is a hybrid between regular cattle and a yak. So a zoe is a really big animal. It's much more powerful and can carry much more weight than an ox. And it's kind of like a, like a what do you call it, donkey, right? Donkey's a hybrid. Kind of like that. Um, so if you put a, a zoe's lo- load on an ox, it would be unkind, unfair. The ox couldn't handle it. And why would you do that? And how much were you being kind towards the animal? How much were you thinking about yourself? And so it's a way of thinking about how we relate to people, what we expect of others, what we expect of ourselves. You know, in the middle of, there's always a sort of interesting balance on the path because on the one hand, there's a certain kind of urgency to it. You know, some teachers say practice like your hair's on fire. Kind of urgency, constant reminders about how short life is. And on the other hand, we've got to relax because we're going to recognize awakening. We can't squeeze our mind into it. So kind of both things are true, and that's kind of how we navigate. And I think this is this is kind of touches on that. You know, it's like do what we can and do what we can, but don't be tight about it, you know. Be open about it. Be kind. Be kind and don't put the burden on ourselves or someone else. Don't overload. And that's sort of where uh, kindness comes in, you know, and compassion comes in and listening comes in, but sort of the, the balance between kindness and wisdom is always really worth paying attention to on the path. So this sense of really embracing and supporting is kind of embedded in, in that short little phrase. And then I love this one too. Whichever of the opposites occur occurs, be patient. Whichever of the opposites occurs, be patient. So this is kind of referring to, you know, the, the, the phenomena of encountering stuff which seems good or pleasant and stuff which seems unpleasant. You know, those are the opposites in life. Um, and this is the, some of you know, the second foundation of mindfulness called Vedanas bids us to be mindful of just that. The pleasant and unpleasant. That's like the very second thing out of four. So it shows how important that is just to be mindful as we navigate life. And so whichever of these occurs, be patient. But patient is an interesting word. And again, I don't know the original Tibetan, but it's not just sort of like passively waiting. And this, because there's a whole chapter on patience. It's a great book, uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And there's a whole chapter on patience, which is so amazing. Highly recommended. Dalai Lama taught for a whole week on that chapter a while back. Um, and patience is a very dynamic wisdom aspect of really being present and gaining insight about how to navigate the slings and arrows. You know, to be patient and let it blow through and just really be mindful and start to see through the distinctions that might take us out or that might distract us. So this is a, you know, I love this. Whichever of the opposites occur, and it sort of helps because we're conditioned in our world to, you know, want the good kind of fun 
of the opposites and avoid the bad. And, you know, people with addiction issues, that's kind of what they do to varying extremes, and we all kind of do that. But to just have this sense it doesn't matter whichever one occurs, just lean into it, be present with it. It's essentially synonymous with mindfulness, moment by moment. And you know, if our first response was to react, to grasp the pleasant, push away the other, other pleasant, unpleasant, that's like, you know, eating the poison food. If we've grasped the pleasant. And that's emphasizing selfing, because who would we be grasping the pleasant for other than our sense of our concrete self? The same with rejection. So it's all kind of, it comes down to me, myself, and mine. You know, this thing that we're generating all the time. So to just really be able to be present with it, not stick there. And so that's part of, it's another way of saying immediately applying to meditation, whatever happens. Is when the person changes lanes in front of us, or when we win the lottery, to have patience and just be present in that moment. It's both both ways are just as important. You know, people do all kinds of goofy, stupid things when they win lotteries. That if they could be patient, then it would be a whole different outcome. So it's this great wisdom of equanimity and not getting caught on the fangs of, you know, promise and disappointment or pleasure and pain. Almost at the end here. I love this one. Always meditate on those who make you boil. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's sort of a similar, another version of what we've been talking about, but it kind of ups the ante a little bit because it's, it's, it's like going right for the difficult. You know, someone who makes our blood boil and so interpersonal. And so think about it, you know, like think of your least favorite politician or least favorite <coughs> global leader without naming any names. But I bet you've probably experienced blood boiling. And, you know, to really bring mindfulness to that and see how when that happens, we concretize those people into something we think is fundamentally evil. And it's not lost on us. There's other people, say, in our country who think just the opposite and feel the same way about persons thinking another way. So surely we can do better than that in terms of how we are with each other. And so this boiling is a real gift if we can practice with it. Yeah, it really it really shows us how concretized we get. I remember uh, Lama Zopa. Lama Zopa talked about that when you when you encounter a moment of anger and feel that surge inside yourself where everything goes red, that's the time to practice. What a gift. That, grab it right there and see what's happening. You know, because right there is where we're concretizing. Right there is where we suddenly think, oh, I'm right, he's wrong, whatever we think. But it, it just gets hot and this hot, sticky mess. And so just see through it right there. So that's why I, I love this. Always meditate on those who make you boil. And this 
this boiling is a very opposite of blaming everything on one thing or meditating on great kindness toward others if we believe in it. You know, when people get caught in the boiling and believe in it and run with it, they're not doing either of those things. They're, they're, they're thinking of the other as a concretized being. They're definitely not cultivating kindness toward that being. So it's really to, to, to really use that as a practice doorway is pretty amazing. It's pretty powerful. And sometimes, as we all know, the hottest moment of boiling may be, in fact, with the person we're closest to, because they know us more than anybody. And there's places when we get all kind of intimate with each other over years, and all the, the tricky, sticky stuff is exposed, and they know whether they even mean to or not, they know just how to throw the lance that will hit us right where it hurts. So to be able to really be present with that, even when it's hurting, even when it's boiling, and just breathe with it and see it, see it, see it, see it, boiling, 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 it's incredibly powerful. Because that's because it's just in that moment we can start to unpack the thing where the wound was that the lance went into. And we can also see what in the other person was their scarred place that made them throw the lamps. So it's like, it's amazing. But it does mean we got to lean into it, seize that moment. And then the last one is practice decisively. And I just love that, you know. In the midst of all this, we must practice decisively because there's... That's the other side of the relax is also practiced decisively. Because it's true, there's not much time. And often that storm, that boiling, is just what we need if we're decisive about working with it. You know? It takes a little a kind of a kind of bravery to just keep stepping forward, stepping forward. That's where the Dharma you know, even though people think, oh, Buddha is so humble, so sweet, and everything. Well, actually, there's a kind of bravery. Most people I know that are practitioners, they just, they will, they, they don't back down. They look it in the eyeball, whatever's coming up, you know, it's pretty amazing. And that's how, that's where freedom comes from. Got to unwind the whole, you know, the Buddha always talked about tangles and thickets, all these metaphors for kind of our, 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 our messy little tangles of, of selfing all the skandhas and how that make the sense of self, but just to never give up, just practice decisively. And it'll work. If we're going to rest, I, I, that's this quote I always read because it's my favorite. Uh, the mind is from the numerical discourses, the Buddha said it. The mind is luminous, obscured by visiting defilements. So if we're going to rest in the luminosity of mind, recognize it, live in it, we need to see through the visiting defilements. And they're going to find us in the course of life. And that's, that's what's hard, but that's also the blessing. And we can't be free of them until we see them and see through them and recognize them. And that's part of the unpacking journey. But it works. So all of these aphorisms, they kind of show us what's possible and also what are the barriers that we can go through simultaneously. And as we practice decisively with patience, love, and wisdom, these barriers barriers will go down. They'll vanish like birds in the wind. 
and freedom will keep finding us. And there's really nothing more to be done. I'm going to just sit for a minute here. <laughs> 